welcome each other into this space. It's so good. If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Scott. I am one of the people who serve in this community as one of our pastors. And if you are new to community or you're settling in, or maybe you've got something going on in your story that you'd love to share, I love to chat over good cups of coffee. I do this as part of my job and I'd love to meet if we can. And the easiest way for us to do that is for you to send me an email. I am at scott at commons.church. Super easy. And we will figure something out. Hope we can do that soon. Now, today, we are starting a new series, and I hope that as we do, this conversation that we've been having for the last few weeks to start 2019 on friendship, that this gave you some perspective and some tools to work with into this new year. And there's so much that can be said about these kinds of relationships in our lives, and in a lot of ways, we had just started to scratch the surface, but I hope that you did come away with some strategies, with some insight, and with some passion to be a better friend and to choose friendships well. But before we move on, a couple quick community notes here. First, our AGM is coming up on March the 13th next month, and you can find all the links to the relevant documents. They're posted at commons.church AGM. And at that meeting, members are going to vote to confirm the budget for this coming year, to, and they're going to elect new members to our board. But actually, this meeting is open to everyone, whether you're a member or not, to just come and be part of that evening to look ahead together. And we also want you to know that nominations for the board are open, and you can find the nomination form at that same link, commons.church slash AGM. These nominations are given to the nomination committee, who then vets the candidates and then give it to the nom- or give it to, or they present them to the community at the meeting. And any member at Commons is available, or available, can be nominated as, a, as one of the members of the board, and the form is going to be available until the end of this month, so be aware of that. Second, a couple weeks ago, our lead pastor, Jeremy Duncan, many of you know him, he was in Denver meeting with the leadership of our family of churches, the Evangelical Covenant Church, or the ECC. And you may have seen some of the vlogs that he uploaded to Facebook and to our YouTube channels. And if you didn't, make sure that you check out those outlets if you're interested in some of the extra content that we create from time to time. Now, Jeremy was there to transfer his ordination, which is sort of the licensing that we have as ministers. He was transferring that into this family of churches, and he was successful, which is great. But he was also there to continue this conversation about LGBTQ inclusion in the Evangelical Covenant Church. And this is something that's really important for us here at Commons. We want to be better at it, and we want to influence the larger conversation in this family of churches, because we don't believe that people are theological problems to be solved. In fact, we actually hold that when we come together and we welcome and we support and encourage each other, even when we don't fully understand one another, that all of us learn and grow and become more grace-filled versions of ourselves. And our LGBTQ friends and siblings, they are an incredible gift to us in this journey, and we continue to have a lot to learn from them. And this idea is a great segue into how we address this new series. As we focus our attention on a completely different kind of biblical literature. Because at least for me, the vast majority of my personal growth has been sparked by listening to people who had a different perspective from me. This applies to my friends, my acquaintances, those people in community, and to the ancient texts that have shaped my life. And I suspect that you have had similar teachers those who came from a different culture or background, those from a different time, 
those with a different set of values, and sometimes the kind of growth that comes to us, it can feel like a challenge when we meet these kinds of teachers. And it can be disorienting as our assumptions about life, as they're exposed, and as our firmly held and established boundaries around an idea start to crumble in the face of someone telling us their story, or someone setting us free with beautiful language, or when we find a new way of looking at something that we thought we knew, and it brings this flurry of freshness to our living. The catch, I think, at least, is that we stifle these kinds of renewal when we only listen to one kind of voice in our lives, or we only read certain kinds of stories in the scriptures, or we only surround ourselves with certain kinds of people. And when we do that, we unknowingly place limits around our ability to be intellectually honest and spiritually passionate people, which is how we, or that's the only way we can become available to the space that we need to grow. So I hope that you will feel invited over the next few weeks into this journey of growth together. Because one of the things that happens when we return to a text like Romans like this is at least for some of us, there's a familiarity to the language and to some of the theological ideas that we're going to throw around for a few weeks. And that can leave us feeling like we're coming back to a place that we've tried to move past in our story. Or it can feel like we're retreading theologies that we had thought we'd forgotten. Or for others of us, you know what? Romans isn't familiar at all, and that's fine. The catch is that this author, Paul, that we're going to look at, he can feel a little bit like an inaccessible and slightly eccentric undergrad philosophy prof, and we don't want to have anything to do with him. But regardless of how and where these texts come to us, I hope that we can all find space to hear them as a new voice. Discover them as an ally in our work of becoming more gracious and more generous and more open with our way of living in the world. Because when we do, we find that Jesus is at the center of it all. And with that said, let's pray and we'll be off and running. God, you are a friend, you are a teacher, and you are the source of all today and always and our Our hearts are restless. They seek the peace and the safety that you bring. And so we ask that you would give us courage to trust you in these moments. We ask that you would stretch and change us as we do the work of thinking our way through an ancient text, but also as we do the work of staying open and choosing to hear the things that come to us in the mystery of your quiet and gentle way of making us new. Let us know you and sense you in fresh and transforming ways. And we ask this in the name of Christ, our hope. Amen. Okay, when in Rome. And to get things going, we need to do a little bit of biographical work here because it's important to know about this text that we're going to be looking at. And just for the record, I love biographies. I tend to read a lot of nonfiction when I read for fun, which doesn't mean that I don't like the stories that many of you do. It just means I'm a different kind of nerd. And I read things like Mike Finkel's The Stranger in the Woods. I don't know how many of you know this story. It's the story of Chris Knight, who disappeared in 1986 into the forests of Maine, and he lived alone for 27 years. And he missed all kinds of stuff in that time. He missed the fall of the Berlin Wall. He missed September 11th. He missed the internet. And oh yeah, he missed his own father's funeral. He kept to himself the whole time, stealing food and reading books to stay alive. It's a crazy story. 
But one of the biographies that has shaped me the most over the past couple of years is one put together by Claiborne Carson on the life of Martin Luther King Jr. And I say put together because Carson is a scholar of Martin Luther King's life. And instead of writing a true biography, what he did is he collected and constructed an autobiography from King's own writings, which were quite extensive. And guys, this book chewed me up in part because it illustrates how Martin Luther King was such a brilliant theologian and thinker even in his youth, long before he was making speeches in Washington. But it also did a great job of filling in the story of the, or, and the history of the civil rights movement. And it did this for me with a profoundly personal touch through the eyes of the person who led portions of the movement. So check that one out if you're interested. And I, the truth is, is that I only mention these stories as examples because I think it's important for us to read parts of the Christian scriptures as biography. Of course, the, the gospel stories that we have about Jesus, these followed the ancient Greek notion of bios, which is where we get our word, biography, which was this idea of recounting a person's life. But the truth is, I'm getting at more than this. I, see, one of the things that happens when we read biblical texts and we work through their theology is that we forget that they emerged from someone's living. And we sometimes get our minds, get all wrapped up in the intellectual rigor of thinking well and figuring out what the text means. And don't get me wrong, that's important. But part of what helps me with Paul, the writer of Romans, is to remember that these things he wrote, these ideas and concepts that he strings together, sometimes in ways that feel really foreign and obscure, these came together for him as he lived and as he worked through his own personal history and the history of his people and then he traveled the world extensively and then he kept on learning, which is why it's important to remember that Paul, the writer of Romans, was part of a sect in Judaism in the first century. And this particular sect, they were super committed. These guys, the rabbis and the teachers, they're called the Pharisees. They actually started as a renewal movement because they had looked around at their community, the Jews, and it bothered them that people were taking, the, taking on the characteristics of the surrounding culture. They were becoming more Greek, People were becoming more Roman. And that meant that this distinctive society that the Jews had been building for hundreds of years, attempting to be faithful and attempting to be just and compassionate, this was being lost. So the Pharisees kind of took on this role of being activists. And they got to the work of calling God's people back to the stories of the Hebrew Bible back to the rhythms of life that made them different. And this activist fire is what fueled Paul as a young person. He loved this tradition and he loved the way of life that it called him into and the way it made him feel. And in one place, he actually says this. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. And this zeal is why we learn that when Jesus' first followers started to gather and they started to tell other people that God's kingdom had come and that Jesus' life, this humble carpenter, Jesus' life and resurrection, that guy had changed everything. Well, guess what? This bothered Paul. He saw those people in that story as polluting this faith that he loved. And he probably saw it as putting the tradition that he carried at risk. So he started 
persecuting those followers of Jesus. And in Acts 9, we read that he had hit the road to prosecute and throw many of them in jail in this city to the north of Israel. And note, too, that his name was Saul at the time. And so we read in the text this. We read that he, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul responded and said, who are you, Lord? And the voice came back and said, I'm Jesus, who you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And friends, this moment, this mysterious encounter in the blinding light with Jesus, it changed Paul's life. Where he went from trying to defend his faith from the story of Jesus to grappling with how Jesus changes everything. But that change didn't just happen overnight. No, Paul lived for several years. In fact, these are years that we don't see in the text at all. And in that time, some of the ways that he had thought about God started to be deconstructed. And he started to build some new ideas about why and how Jesus fit into the Jewish story until he emerged and he starts teaching and starting little Christian communities all around the Mediterranean. And sometime around 56 CE, he writes this letter to some followers of Jesus in the Roman capital. And he says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who was, or who as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed to the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. And he's talking about Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him, we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles, all peoples, to the obedience that comes from faith. This is Paul introducing himself to some people he doesn't know. And I love how this weaves the details of Paul's life together with how the story of Jesus had changed it. Because over here, you've got Paul, formerly an expert in the law. Now he's a carrier of the good news of Jesus. You have Paul, who was this child of a great, rich Hebrew tradition. He doesn't stop being that, but now he's aware of how this tradition is for all people. And one of the things I hope that you're able to do over the next few weeks as we remember this is that when the vocabulary is a little awkward and Paul is talking about things that feel really old, or when you're struggling, quite honestly, to understand why any of this matters, why we're talking about it, remember this, that these theologies emerged and grew and developed out of Paul's living, just like yours do. Because if you you think about it, we all have our own histories. We have our own communities. We have our own experiences, for better or worse. And these things shape how we talk about God and how we think about our faith. And just like Paul, we have to be aware of this. And we have to come clean about these things in order to build the kind of faith that many of us long to live with. Because maybe you are in a journey of questioning right now where you are pulling down some of the boundaries that you have been told that faith requires you to hold and defend. Or maybe you've reached a place in your story where you finally feel comfortable with who you are and you want to know more about the ideas and the traditions that these texts bring to you. Or maybe you're in a place where you're just trying to figure out what's next. 
how to grow, how to be present, how to take the next step in your life. And these are all great places to be because they are your life, which is the seedbed for all the kinds of thinking and searching and loving that can spark depth and meaning for you. Even those times in your life when you feel that you're busy doing things that distract you from what's best. Or those times when you feel that you're going in the wrong direction. Because that's what these things did for Paul. So, pay attention to the things that pop out to you over the next few weeks. Maybe grab coffee, share them with someone. Or if you need to, make a record of the ways that you find yourself shifting over the next few Sundays and write those down in your journal because I am sure that the same grace that shaped Paul's biography is shaping ours together. Now, before we go today, I want to offer you a couple of anchor points for some of what we're going to hear Paul say. We're going to look back at Romans chapters 1 to 8 for just a few minutes. Uh, These are things that we've worked through over the last few years together. And we're looking ahead to chapters 9 to 12 that we're going to cover before we get to Easter this year. And for the record, this is not going to be a comprehensive review. That would be impossible. We're just going to try to hit a few high points. I hope that's okay with you. So I read a minute ago how Paul thought of himself as an apostle, which is literally just a word for someone who sees themselves as being sent. And Paul thought of himself as being sent as an ambassador, sent to share the gospel of God with Jews and with Gentiles. And this gospel, this good news that he's talking about, it's Jesus. It's pretty easy. And as a devout Jew, Paul was convinced that the story of the Hebrew people made so much more sense now, knowing that Jesus had lived, died, and had come back to be. And so when in chapter one, he writes this, he says, for the gospel of God, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith. Paul is saying a couple things with this phrase. First, he's saying this. He's saying, look, Jesus reveals God's character. That's why you need to look at him. And then Paul's also emphasizing that we need to trust the goodness of God, the good character of God that we see in Jesus, because it changes the way that we live. But then Paul says this in the next verse. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and the wickedness of people. And we have spent some time over the last few years working through Paul's language here because it's a bit hard. And it's important to remember Paul's Jewish heritage as we listen to him because when Paul talks about God's wrath, he's not looking at it through the lens of the Hebrew Bible, which gives us some pictures of God as being angry and vengeful sometimes, it seems. No, Paul is thinking about God's wrath in light of Jesus. And this is what he's saying. He's saying that both righteousness, goodness, and wrath are revealed now that Jesus came to us in human history. Which might have some of you saying, okay, it's cold outside, my brain's not working, what are you talking about? Well, here's Paul's point. Jesus' life and resurrection show that God is good and God is faithful to make all things new. That's the righteousness part that he's talking about. And Paul's saying that Jesus' life and resurrection help us to understand how God's anger reveals his faithfulness too. Now, when Paul's talking about God being angry, he's not saying that God's angry eyes are ever directed at you or at me or at creation. Paul says that God's wrath is directed at godlessness 
and wickedness. And these two terms in the Greek, they literally mean something like ignorance of the sacred things and ignorance of justice. And while we may not know exactly how those words were used back in Paul's life, what's clear is that Paul is not saying that God's super mad at us. God's wrath is directed at all the ways that we ignore what is right and true and how we ignore the intrinsic value of everyone and everything. And when we hurt and we injure with no concern for justice. So let me spell this out. This anchor for how to think when we're in Rome. God is not mad at you. God's not working against you. That's not what Paul's talking about. God is always for. But that also means that God has to be against the things that injure and distract and destroy us. And the truth is that the vocabulary that Paul uses actually hints at how we collect and attract wrath to ourselves, which isn't the happiest image. But you know what? It's not that hard to imagine. Is anybody else here in close proximity to the shady version of themselves? Like me, maybe you're selfish. I want things that I shouldn't want and I get angry at others when they let me down or they're rude or they hurt me. Think of all the ways that we hold on to things and practices and affections that are toxic to us. I, I actually know what many of my flaws are, but that does not keep me from getting to them. And the fact that God resists these things at times and in all places, it doesn't mean that the divine is a cruel force in the world. No, it's actually the opposite. Paul is arguing that God never stops being for us but also that God doesn't stop being against the things that crush us. And yes, sometimes it feels like God's wrath is directed at us. Maybe in our sickness or our abandonment or in a series of doors and opportunities that seem to close right in our face. Paul comes to us there. Maybe that's where you are today. And gently reminds us, look at Jesus. Because the story of Jesus speaks most beautifully to us of what could be, even when it hasn't come to us yet. And it helps us let go of our feelings that God is mad, he's mad at us. Because Jesus came and lived and suffered the worst of human loss and betrayal. And the fact that God would expose God's self to that, you know what that shows us? That shows us that affection is more divine than anger. And maybe for you this helps with every broken thing you hold to yourself. Your immature moments, the unforgiveness in your friendships, maybe even your experiences of being a victim. And you can realize that those things have to be dealt with, right? For the world to be renewed as God intends. And what Paul's saying to us is that God would only ever be mad at how those things keep us from each other and how they keep us from knowing divine love. Now, there's one more quick step that I want to make today. And for it, we need to fast forward to Romans chapter five, which we read last year together. And this is what it says. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, 
Jesus Christ. And this is an important piece to pull out because there is a phrase in this verse that I've just read that's likely shaped some of us who've been around Christian communities before. Here in this couple of verses, Paul's talking about our human experience and how sin and error have come to be part of that experience with this mistake that was made at the beginning and how death came with that mistake. And to be clear, this story about the first man and the first woman disobeying God's commands, this was part of the Jewish tradition that Paul had inherited. And this is why Paul reiterates a common understanding of what theologians refer to as original sin. Or a better way to say that is the original mistake. If you look carefully at the language here, Paul's saying this. He's saying, see, sin's part of the human story, and it's been that way from further back than we can remember, and it persists because we all participate in it. We all experience the death that comes to us because of the mistakes we make. And we talked a little bit about how Paul's idea here, how it changed over time. See, There's this one early church leader named Augustine. He read Paul and wrote about Paul a lot. And instead of using the Greek that informs our English translations that to this phrase roughly because all have sinned right at the end of that phrase, Augustine was using a Latin translation we call the Vulgate, which roughly equates in English to in whom all have sinned. And that might seem just like wordplay, like, oh, we're just moving prepositions around. But no, this translation led Augustine to a theological innovation that the world hadn't seen before, where he thought that all human beings sinned with Adam in some mysterious way. And from there, he developed this idea of original sin, slavery to death, being estranged from God. He saw this as being something that's passed down through our human experience and species in physical conception, or put another way, he said basically we're all genetically predisposed to screwing things up. And sometimes he was saying, you know what, and you have messed up even if you haven't messed up yet. And to be honest, that's not what Paul appears to have been saying. Yes, Paul saw death as a huge part of the human experience, but not because of one primeval act like Augustine thought. No, Paul looked at our continued acts of rebellion and abuse and violence. He saw these as evidence that we are being held apart from God. And in such models, our choices are front and center. We're like Adam in our own social conditions, just like any human being before us. We choose ways and behaviors and actions that take us away from God's goodness and from God's intentions for us. What's interesting is that if we look at some other early church contemporaries of Augustine, those other writers placed a lot of emphasis on this freedom to choose these things. They also read Paul and they affirmed this idea that Adam was the original in that he was the first of many. And that our lives, like Adam's, or they're like Adam's because of our human capacity to choose a way of being. But some of these other thinkers, they differed from Augustine in a significant way. See, they believed that all our cumulative choices, the ways that we hurt and destroy and neglect, these things happen because the image of God in us has been defaced, they said. They believed that God's goodness was at our core, 
And that sin and death are a stain on our true essence. Those things that we do wrong, those aren't at the source of our deepest and original being. And I think that this is something that we can recover as we head back into Romans. Because most of us don't have to use our imaginations to agree with Paul here. Yeah, there's all kinds of evil, there's all kinds of death, there's physical loss, there's rampant injustice, there's tension and dehumanization between cultures and factions. These are all ways that we destroy God's image in each other. And there's death in other places too. We get sick and we're lonely and we willfully pursue things that we want despite what it costs us and anybody else. And describing how all of this wounds us, Paul gets it right. He says, sin has come to us in the world and death has come with it to us all because we all keep messing up. But Paul isn't saying that that's what's original about us. The way that we're made in God's image that in any way this is altered by our mistakes. No, it's more like we lose that image. And it slips through our fingers and we forget about it as we leave it behind through our day-to-day experience in our world. Which makes me wonder if we could hear it as a new voice today and recover some of the good news that Paul wrote to his friends about in Rome because you know your tendencies the times that you're harsh with those that you love, when you do too much of that thing and not enough of this thing over here, those moments when you berate yourself for failing again, when you start to believe that you are the sum total of all the compromise and the flaws, forgetting that you are made in God's image before you take a breath. And if you can feel that in some way today, Paul comes to you and he tells you the good news that guess what? My life was completely changed. And he'll tell you how in his biography, the sum total of his mistakes could not keep the divine from getting to him. And he'd whisper to you of how God's goodness is more original than your weakness. And then he'd tell you to look at Jesus who came to remind us of who we are, how good we could be repairing the way that we look at our truest selves. And Paul asks us to hear him when he says this, look, I have lived and I have screwed up, but trust me, I am convinced that neither death or life, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And when you think about it, this is a really great place to start from. Let's pray. God, help us to hear old words in new ways, I pray. Some of us need this so desperately for our biographies. The ways that our stories seem to be repeating and we feel trapped. Some of us need to hear Paul in new ways as an ally in our move toward a grace-filled life. Let me ask, would you help us as we try to let go of this image of you as angry? 
choosing to hear your words to us as kind instead of frustrated. Help us to learn that what's truest about us at our core is your goodness, your character and your image. And where life has clouded that for us, where we have forgotten who we are and who others are around us, would you give us grace to trust that love is more original than fear and that kindness is more original than anger and that nothing we could do would ever separate us from the great force of who you are. Yeah, strengthen our feeble hearts and our weak hands and our imaginations that sometimes are so limited and fill us with peace as we carry these things and walk into the things we face even today and in the days to come. In the name of Christ we ask, who is our hope? Amen.